I begin this morning by reading a couple of verses from the 57th chapter of Isaiah. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Father, how it is that you are able to be transcendent and eminent at the same time, we cannot comprehend, but we're so grateful for this truth, which we believe because it's proclaimed in your word, and because we understand it in looking at the heavens and yet realizing that as we pray day by day, you work, even as you did for Dave and Beth and in so many other ways that we've experienced, even in the last days. Father, we know that you care for us individually. We know that you've called us to your purpose, whether to our neighbors, to our family, to each other, around the world, wherever it may be. We're to be Christ in the flesh to this planet and, and to the population of our city. And we pray, Father, that you will keep us faithful in doing that. And Lord, I pray that your word will speak to our hearts this morning. Uh, it is from you that we receive truth because you are the author of truth. And that truth, Christ said, will set us free as we live according to it and in obedience to it. Father, I pray that this morning now you will speak, you will glorify, you will magnify your name in this class and in all the Sunday school classes and the service on this property and around the world. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to begin the 19th chapter of 1 Samuel today. And I'd like to read the first seven verses. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I shall tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. There's a time gap between chapter 18 and chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, but it's unspecified. We don't know how long it was, but I don't think it was more than maybe just a few months at most. Saul, of course, had hoped, and we've seen this uh, through the previous chapters, Saul had hoped that somehow David would be slain by the Philistines. That as he went out to battle, as he, of course, had to go out and get the evidence that he had slain uh, 100 Philistines and the opportunities that he had to go out and lead his men in battle. Through it all, Saul was hoping that somehow the Philistines would overcome David and David would be slain and thus removed from Saul's life. However, 
Saul's hopes were repeatedly dashed because David came back unscathed from each of the battles and exposures to the Philistines. Now David, of course, we've seen was highly popular and now he's married to Saul's daughter Michael and so Saul is constantly reminded that David's around because he's now his son-in-law, he's living with his daughter and, and he, of course, is in the royal court as part of the entourage. So finally, in utter frustration, Saul simply turns to Jonathan and other members of the court that are standing there and he says, I want David dead. Point out, you know, point blank. He says this to them. Of course, the scripture immediately says, but Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. A lot of good it did for Saul to speak to Jonathan about this matter in terms of expecting Jonathan to do anything about it. Now, Saul had earlier recognized, and I highlighted this as we went through it before, Saul had earlier recognized that if he was in any way directly associated with the death of David, this would probably be detrimental to his own prestige, his reputation, and even possibly to his possession of the throne. So he had, he had distanced himself from that, and that's why he had hoped that the Philistines would do the job for him. But at this point, Saul is so consumed with his hatred of David that he wanted him dead, irregardless of the consequences. Now, he would not have said that, but that's the way he is acting, irregardless of the consequences. And of course, what this is obviously demonstrating to us is that Saul's extreme irrationality is based upon his paranoia. And this paranoia is aggravated by the fact that he is under evil spirit oppression. Now, of course, if you were to study in the area of psychology, you would know that most psychologists today, secular psychologists, do not believe in evil spirits. They don't believe in demons. But as Christians, we understand that although there are principles in psychology that are very important and, and are, you know, like medicine, they, they are able to determine things that are helpful. But by leaving out the demonic realm, there's a big gap there. And even though I believe Saul was paranoid, psychologically paranoid, I think this whole condition was aggravated by this demonic oppression in his life. Now, we do not find any statement here in the first or second verses that Jonathan or the others opposed Saul in this and said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. There's, there's silence there. I, I don't think that any of them openly expressed their dismay in front of Saul. But I think Jonathan and probably the bulk of the courtiers, maybe not all, there may have, may have been a few of the courtiers who were jealous of David and were thinking like Saul was, we don't know. But uh, most of them at least were unwilling to have anything to do with killing the man who had delivered Israel and who was so highly esteemed by the whole country. As we read back at the beginning of the 18th chapter of this book, Jonathan loved David as a brother. And you remember he covenanted with David. He gave David his sword. He gave David his, his bow and his arrow. He gave him his, his princely robe. He did virtually everything to make David a brother and to, in effect, what we would say in the medieval world, knight him. Because of David's glory and honor, which actually eclipsed that of Jonathan. You know, you, you think about this for a minute. The, the song, remember, was... Dave, uh, John, uh, mm, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Well, where's Jonathan? You know, maybe they should have said uh, that Jonathan had slain his hundreds and Saul his thousands, but, but you don't see Jonathan mentioned in that little poem at all. 
And so Jonathan could have felt jealous. Jonathan could have thought, hey, now wait a minute, I'm heir apparent here. I, I'm the one who should succeed to the throne upon the death of my father. I am the one who led Israel in a great victory over the Philistines at one point in time. And yet we do not find him saying that at all or even thinking that. Instead, he loved David with a godly love. And I think that's where the big difference comes. I, I don't think Jonathan could become jealous of David, at least as long as he loved David in this agape type love, this, this godly uh, type of love. And so what he did was immediately run to David and warn him about what his father had chosen to do. Now let me read a, a, a couple of verses out of 1 John. We all, I think, know 1 John as the book which, which deals with the topic of love more pointedly almost than any other book in the Bible. In the fourth chapter of 1 John, at verse 7, we read these words, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You know, it's really, really powerful statements which are made there. Now, of course, the love that's being referred to here, we all understand, is not the love that this world speaks of. It's not the world love they sing about in these country and western and other kinds of uh, popular music. Um, that's really a selfish love that's primarily talked about there. It's, it's not a giving love. It's not the kind of love that flows from God himself. The kind of love of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love that John is talking about here in this particular passage. You know, and it's pretty pointed. It says if we don't love our, our brother, we don't love God because God is love. If we love God, then his love flows into us and out of us. And therefore, it's not possible for us if we're truly walking in God's love to hate our brother. We will love our brother. And it goes on down in verse 19 to say, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And of course, we're, we were told by uh, you know, Jesus, that as, as the love of God uh, is exhibited amongst us, that's, that's what the world sees. That's what draws the world into the church in terms of wanting what we have if we see love. But if we see, if all the, church, if all the world sees is church bickering and arguing over whether they should ordain gays or not, you know, or some other such thing, that doesn't draw people into the church at all. That just turns them off. The world views the church as simply nothing more than what the world is, just a human organization, a social club, if you will. So the love of God is, is the big difference. It's what draws people. It's what magnifies the Lord. It's what reflects His glory into this world. And so this is what Jonathan is displaying here. So in contrast to his father Saul, who hates David, absolutely hates him, detests him, wants him dead, and Jonathan wants to preserve him. So you see the opposite sides here of the spectrum, one manifesting the love of God, the other manifesting the hatred of the world, the flesh, and of the devil. Apparently, Jonathan knew that his father was going to be in that field the following day. Maybe they had made arrangements to go out and talk about something in the field, 
And so Jonathan told David, you hide out here in this field and, and I will talk to my father about you. I will intercede for you with my father. So the following morning, as Jonathan and, Dave, and Saul walked in this field, uh, Gibeah is on a hilltop. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go there, uh, you'll see it on the right side, the east side of the main highway north of Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of rises on it. There's, there's no town there anymore, but there's a palace sitting up there that was built by King Hussein when that area belonged to Jordan. It wasn't completed, but it was built there. And so you, you wonder, well, where could this field be that they were walking in? Well, there, of course, it's not a tall hill, and there are fields all around, and rocks and gullies, and so there, there are many ways in which David could hide. You have to remember that Israel is, is not a flat country. <laughs> there is some flat land down where the Philistines lived, but most of Israel is very rugged. It's hilly, it's, uh, and, and there are lots of rocks everywhere. It's a very rocky land, and uh, so, so David could have easily hidden out in this field as Jonathan and Saul walked that morning. What we discover is that Jonathan very carefully but very bluntly speaks to his father about his father's desire to have David killed. Now, D Jonathan wasn't guessing because Saul the previous day had said, I want David dead, flat out to his men in the court there. He warned him. He warned his father. Now, this is the voice uh, coming from heaven, in effect, through Jonathan. He warned him that killing David would be a sin because David had done nothing worthy of execution. He had done no wrong against the nation or against Saul. Yes, it's believed that princes had the power of capital punishment. This has been believed down through all of history from the earliest of times. And yet, obviously, there has to be a, a legitimate reason for execution, and there was none in the case of, uh, of Jonathan. And he said that, on the contrary, David has been very beneficial to you. Look what he did. He slew Goliath, which not even you could do. Well, again, what we see in this passage is something other, some, some more of the character of Saul. We see, I think, a kind of a schizophrenia here in this man, because he now at least temporarily agrees that Jonathan is right. Oh, yes, you're right, Jonathan. I, I, I shouldn't want David dead. And he swears by the name of the Lord that David will not die. Takes an oath. He takes a vow. Of course, the only audience is, is Jonathan, but Jonathan is his son and heir. The word listened in verse 6 there, where it says that Saul listened to the voice of his son Jonathan. Uh, if you translated it the most literal way, the Hebrew word would translate obey. Saul obeyed the voice of Jonathan. And what that seems to indicate that Saul is not convinced in his heart that Jonathan is right, but he's willing to do what Jonathan says to diffuse the whole situation and to get guilt off of his shoulders for the moment at least. When their conversation was over, we discover that Jonathan somehow departs, separates himself from Saul. Saul probably goes back to his, uh, to his fortress, and, and Jonathan seeks out David and gives him the good news. My father has sworn in the name of Yahweh that you will not die. And so Jonathan, it's okay. Uh, David, it's okay for you to come back to the royal court. And so he brings him back into the royal court to serve Saul. This will be the last time. Reading on at verse 8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul, 
as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp that was in his hand. Notice the contrast. Saul was sitting with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. One the instrument of death, the other the instrument of life. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped out of Saul's presence, so that he struck, stuck the spear, struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. I'm sure David's getting a little bit tired of, of uh, you know, being Saul's target for his target practice. David returned to his duties. And again, we don't know what the time frame is. H how many days, weeks, months passed from the time that David was brought back into the royal palace before this event transpires that we read? We don't know. I, I would suspect it was probably several months and there was peace in the royal court and and Saul kept his anger to himself and probably his love, you know, didn't generate any love for David, was constantly being reminded that David was there, and, but nothing ill happened. Then war broke out between Israel and Philistia. Since David was Saul's most successful and experienced commander, David was given command of the forces to go out and deal, deal with the Philistines. What we discover in this passage is he didn't just defeat the Philistines. It says that he defeated them with a great slaughter. Hundreds, maybe thousands of Philistines were slain on the battlefield and that the remaining forces were routed. Read down through the pages of history and you discover that it's one thing to fight a battle as, well, you probably don't remember uh, when you studied about the Battle of Tours that was fought in 732 between the, the forces of the Franks and the Moors that had come out of Spain to try to conquer Europe on behalf of Islam. But the knights of the Franks, uh, who lived in what is today France, and from whom the word France comes, fought on, on a battlefield that day. And when the sun went down, the two sides went camp, and then the next morning, the Moors had gone. That was one kind of battle where the two sides could almost each claim that neither had really won the battle other than the one side decided to go home the next day. But that's not a rout. But if you go, for example, to the Battle of Waterloo, uh, which was fought in 1815 and, and where Napoleon nearly crushed the forces of Wellington, but that the German forces arrived just in time to, to strike the French forces and, and the French forces just ran. I mean, they turned tail and they ran. That's a rout. <laughs> when the enemy just throws down their weapons and takes off, that's a rout. And that's humiliating to the defeated forces, and it's also highly destructive. And that's probably why this great slaughter uh, came about. And so you can imagine, well, how, how did the nation react to this? How did the nation react to this? They had already sung their song after the death of Goliath about David slaying his tens of thousands when he hadn't yet. But, but the number is probably being rapidly approached now. Probably in all the battles that David fought, even up to this moment, he had slain thousands, or he was responsible at least for the slaying. In those days, at the time we're talking about at least, um, David was not the, uh, like a World War II battle commander who sat in his tent uh, 50 miles back from the line and directed the forces. He was more like Alexander the Great, out on the cutting edge of the army, out with the troops fighting in the lines and leading the battle exposed to the enemy. And so David himself was a warrior and probably was responsible personally for the death of many Philistines other than Goliath. So I think he was highly lauded for this great victory that day. And so again, Saul is reminded they're praising David again. 
well, you know, were they singing in the streets again? Well, we're not told, but very possibly so. And of course, this just enhanced Saul's jealousy and, and Saul's hatred of David. Probably a few days or maybe a few weeks later, Saul suffered another direct demonic attack. Saul's impenitence kept the door open for repeated attacks by the evil one. Saul would not repent of the evil. Saul was a man who was dead set against serving God, and as a result, he was fair game for the evil one. What we discover about David is he again displays his humility and his care for Saul because he comes in and he begins to play. His lyre uh, forced Saul again to comfort him while Saul sits there with his spear and the demon oppressing him and his, his, his whole attitude like a giant thundercloud. I mean, David could have said, you know, this is very similar to something I did not do long ago. <laughs> it was a bit dangerous. Was he wary now? After the previous episode where he had done the same thing and twice, Saul had tried to spare him? I think he was. I think he kept a careful eye. I think he was playing his music and he wasn't doing, oh, this is such beautiful music. I think it was like this. <laughs> Watching Saul very carefully to see him the first flinch on the part of Saul, David was ready to move and I think he was ready to dodge the spear, as it were. Saul's heart was so hardened against God that although it was probably not even half a year since he had sworn in the name of God before his son Jonathan that he would not allow David to die, that he's willing now to attempt to kill him himself. Did the name of the Lord mean anything to Saul? Not anymore. So Saul again hurled the spear at David. How close was David? I don't know. Probably not terribly far away. Was Saul losing his touch? <laughs> I don't think so. I think we have God there to prevent the spear from killing David. David was quick on his feet. He was, of course, young, able to move quickly, but I think it was more than that. I think God would deflect the spear because God had ordained David to rule Israel not to be pinned to the wall of Saul's palace with a spear. David did not come back this time as he did the previous time and play some more. In fact, we're told that he fled from the royal court and went to his own home, never again to come into the service of Saul. Never. For the remaining years of Saul's reign from that last fling of the spear, David was a fugitive from Saul. Later, when David was able to be quiet enough to remember what God had done and for his poetic nature to come out, David wrote a psalm, one of his many psalms, of course. And uh, one of the psalms that he wrote that deals with this particular attempt uh, by Saul to take his life and of God's deliverance is the 18th psalm. And I'm not going to read all of Psalm 18. It's a very long psalm. But let me just read the first three verses of Psalm 18 to get a flavor of, of David's thoughts concerning what God had done for him, he says in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. The first rock there is literally crag, this, this mighty crag up in the top of a, of a mountain, and the second one is specifically a rock as we think of it. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 
I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. We, of course, can use that same psalm as our prayer. We may not have a literal Saul flinging a spear at us, but we have the same evil one who was inspiring Saul, who is battling against us as God's people today, and wants to destroy us as much as Saul, under the inspiration of the evil one, wanted to destroy David. You'll notice as you read uh, many of David's psalms, he talks about fortresses, shields, high places, things that are, are not familiar to us as part of our everyday uh, life. We, we don't think of fleeing to a fortress or getting out our shield, a literal shield, to, to protect us. Uh, obviously, he's using the uh, things that would have been familiar to most of people for all of history down to about four or five hundred years ago, even less than that, even closer to the present. So many, much of the imagery of Scripture is very, very fitting for all of time, except for the very modern era in terms of uh, literally fleeing to a physical fortress uh, might uh, be. But uh, we all know the image, uh, of course, uh, that David is referring to here. Well, let's, let's read on in the um, 19th chapter of 1 Samuel, reading at verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat hairs at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when, he saw the when, when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, <laughs> this is such a unique thing, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And it was, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent yet again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Siku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramoth. And he proceeded there to Naoth at Ramoth. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth at Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and laid down naked all day long and all that night. Therefore they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Don't limit God. <laughs> the very evening after David had fled from Saul, with the sound of the spear going in the wall, Saul sent men. There apparently were some men in his hire who were willing to, to take David's life. The majority of them, of course, wouldn't. Certainly most of the courtiers wouldn't. These were probably some of the lower life that were part of his uh, bodyguard. He, he sent them to lie in wait at David's door in order to assassinate him as soon as he came out the following morning. How did Michael know this? 
Well, either Michael observed the stakeout, or somehow a message came to her, and I think it's more the latter than the former. Somehow a message came to her telling what Saul had said. And so Michael warns David that there has been a trap set. And so she facilitates his escape. Now remember, she is Saul's daughter. But the key is, Michael loved David. And so she, she lets her husband down through the window. What does that mean? I mean, how does that help David? Well, we're not told where the location of the house was. We can think that possibly the house was on the wall, as the, was the case of Rahab. Remember Rahab in Jericho? Her house was on the wall, and she let the spies down uh, outside the wall, so they were outside the city. Maybe that's where David's house was, on the wall, and so that she was able to let him down outside the city. Or it could be that the window simply faced out onto the roof of neighboring houses. That, that was not uncommon and that he just simply down, went down the roof and jumped from roof to roof or dropped to in an alleyway. We, we don't know. All we know is that she let him out a window and he escaped. So somehow that window wasn't being watched wherever it was located. Why wasn't that window watched? Yeah, well, we all know God was involved here. And David fled outside the city, escaped out of the city of Gibeah so that he would no longer be endangered by Saul. Now, the, the passage has some rather strange things in it here. In order to, do, to give her husband more time to escape, Michael, it says, took her household gods, the word is teraphim here, and, and that she put them in bed and, and made a kind of an image of David and put a goat here at the head so it looks like his hair up there and made it look like he was lying in bed. Now, one of the commentators, Ronald Youngblood, argues that the word teraphim is always in the plural. It's never singular, meaning multiple images. And he also says the images are always very small. They're just little things that like sit on a shelf someplace. They're never large life-size images. So he is arguing that what she did was took blankets and so forth and wrapped them all up to, to make it look like that and then put the teraphim right along the edge of the bed. Meaning, of course, that David was so sick and nearly dying that they had put the gods there to, to try to help him get healed quick, more quickly. This would be the image that would be presented to somebody who looked in and saw, oh man, this guy must be really sick. They got all these images along the edge there. Sort of like in some branches of Christianity where you were sick while you stick all these little saints around and, and so forth, hoping to uh, get better. The teraphim were undoubtedly Michael's, not David's. There's no indication whatsoever that uh, David was uh, someone who hedged his bets, who believed in Yahweh and also believed in the, the Lares and the Penates concept, the, the household deities that helped spirits sort of like, that protected the household. They were undoubtedly Michael's. And Michael may have possessed them for the same reason that Rachel stole her father's images and took them along with her when, when she fled, when, when Jacob fled, and that is to use them as a good, good luck charm to ward off that one thing that a newly married woman hated above everything else and dreaded above everything else, and that was barrenness. Ronald Youngblood, however, says, not however, but he says, Michael's use of the household gods doubtless reflected a pagan in inclination or at least an ignorance of what it meant to truly trust in God. Now, David and Michael haven't been married terribly long, 
and uh, we have to understand that, that David wouldn't be walking into this situation the same way we might walk into it, or hopefully might walk into a situation like that, proclaiming the word of the, God, of the Lord, you know, thou shalt not have uh, pagan idols in my household. But, but you know, David is in a, in a day and age when uh, that was more commonly accepted. When David didn't emerge from his house the following morning, the assassins knocked on the door and, and wanted, demanded to come in so that they could see David. Well, of course, Michael pretended innocence, so she didn't know anything. What, what are you guys here for? What, what do you want to find David for? And she says, but she, so she warned him, she says, no, be careful. He's sick and it might be contagious, but I'll let you look around the corner. You can see his body. His, he's lying in bed over there and he's very sick. Notice the teraphim there. And uh, so this is a very, very serious, I'm reading into it, of course, but this is, seems like what must have happened here. Well, they weren't authorized to do any violence to Michael. Saul had not given them any permission to, to charge in there and, and, and just to bowl over Michael. After all, she was the daughter of the king. And so the men decided to return back to Saul to get proper authorization to do whatever they needed to do. They knew that Saul was a man of a hair-trigger temper, and if they were to do something that, that in any way harmed his daughter, they might be in trouble. And so they went back to find out what Saul wanted them to do. Well, Saul accepts the ruse. Oh, he's sick in bed. Well, okay. Go get him and bring him in his bed to me so that I can kill him. Did this mean that Saul intended to kill David personally? I mean, he'd already tried it three times and failed. Well, very much it could mean that. Or it could simply mean he would oversee his death. By the time the ruse was discovered, however, David had been gone for hours. You know, David had probably been gone for six, eight, ten hours. We don't know how long, which gave him a tremendous head start. And Saul was ticked. Saul angrily challenged his daughter for her duplicity. But how does she react? Does she say, well, Dad, you know I love him. You think I'm going to turn him over to you to kill him? No, she decides that for her own safety, that she'll tell him that David very much said to me, I'm going to kill you if you don't pull off this ruse. You know, that, that's what she's saying there, which, of course, David didn't do, but that's what, she, you know, she's telling a lie uh, to her father to protect her own uh, bacon here. Well, did Saul believe her? Saul knew she loved him. Remember when, when Saul heard that way back before he married her, he said that was good because he thought that would be another way to get at uh, David. Of course, uh, he should have thought about the fact if she loves him, He's probably not, she's not going to cooperate with her father, and so she didn't. So did he choose to believe her story, that David really had threatened her and therefore she had no choice, or did he just decide to let it go because what good does it do? David is gone. Well, David knew that one person could be trusted above all other persons in Israel at that time, and that was the prophet Samuel. As a man of God, Samuel would provide David not only with sanctuary, but with godly advice, and David was greatly in need of godly advice. And when I think about this, it reminds me of how desperately you and I are often in need of godly advice. How important it is in this sin-sick world that we seek the advice of godly men and women who've walked this way before. And I think it's important for us to walk with the Lord in such a way that we can be givers of such advice. I have heard that, I won't be specific, but someone wanted to, who was a Mormon, wanted to talk to a born-again Christian who could help him understand the, the, the differences and why he should believe in Christ, and that 
response from that person to him was, well, I don't really know, but you ought to pray about it. But you ought to pray about it. But you ought to pray about it. And the guy went away. Hey, why should I believe in Christianity? I get no answers. That's not the advice we need to be able to give. It's important that this is a very important role of the elders of the church. And when I use the word elder, I don't mean only the, the officially appointed elders. Certainly they. But I think godly men and women who are within the framework of the church, who are of mature faith and who are walking in accordance with the word, need to be available to give godly advice to those who are in need. And even sometimes to take the initiative and offer that advice, in a, obviously, in a, in a godly and loving and uh, gentle way, or at least to see if the person who needs it wants it. And certainly, that is the example of Samuel to, to David here. And so under the cover of darkness, David ran three miles north to Gibeah, uh, of Gibeah to Ramoth, knowing, of course, that this is going to take Saul very long to figure out where he probably went. Three miles isn't very far. And so Samuel finally says, well, let's go to Naoth. Well, I think we'll stop there and, and talk about Naoth next time and what happened because we've read the passage and we know what happens is, is extremely unusual and very dramatic and, and helps to understand that God is able to do all things and in ways that we don't even imagine. Later on, you're going to discover, if, as you've read in the story of, of Elijah, that, Elisha, that when the king sent people to capture him, God fried him. Literally sent fire from heaven and cooked the whole group. So, I mean, God operates differently <laughs> from one time to the next. He's never in a box.